October. Ooh, spooky month, spooky month. Spooky, spooky. So we decided that we wanted to start spooky month with a creepypasta, Mm -hmm. highly requested. I know a lot of you guys messaged us and was like, do more, do one. We had one of our um, like closest listeners, I guess, say that they wanted it like every week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We wish. If there was enough time in a week or just like enough hours in a day, I absolutely would love that. Me too. But there isn't. <laughs> we don't have any time. No. We no. never have any time. But we're having time right now. So yeah. yeah. And we love doing them too. So we really do. So it's a twofer. <laughs> a, a two pluser. <laughs> a two pluser? <laughs> um all right. I think Amber's gonna start us off. This oh yeah. Time. So this is actually a, a story that I really wanted to do the last creepy pasta. So this is kind of like my leftover notes per se. It's called The Woman in the Walls. Mm. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the story starts about a year ago. Charlotte and I had just moved into an apartment in the city. It was smaller than our condo, but much, much closer to both of our workplaces. We'd fallen in love with the place almost the moment after we set eyes on it. Everything from the big living room windows to the pet policy and the little coffee shop across the street endlessly endeared us. The bus station was just outside, so we'd quickly made a habit of getting a coffee before Charlotte's bus arrived. I'd see her off to work, then I'd walk 10 minutes to mine, and that was that. What I'm trying to say, I guess, is that it was really, really perfect, for me at least. Charlotte, um, well, she'd always have a nervous disposition, but it was a bit exaggerated by the move. After only a few months into our new apartment, the slightest things would startle her. A siren wailing outside, the timer on the microwave, the doorbell anything loud really her hands would shake uncontrollably like she was cold though we kept the heat on somewhat balmy at 75 degrees she had expressed to me a feeling of being watched by the people on the street and asked that the curtains be drawn all the time i'll admit i argued fiercely with her on that one as i love people watching and the shut curtains made me feel a little claustrophobic I remember one night when she complained to me about the sounds of our neighbors walking upstairs. I heard nothing, but she described it as low scraping noise like they were moving heavy furniture. Like I said, I didn't hear anything, and I figured she was just getting used to living so close to other people. At her insistence, I went upstairs to talk to them, but they said they hadn't been moving anything heavy, and I didn't pursue it any further. I sat down with Charlotte that morning and talked it over with her. She told me she couldn't stand being around all these people. She'd wake up in the middle of the night to the sounds of footsteps, footsteps that sounded like someone was pacing along the edge of our room. We both agreed that it would be good to get away from the city and just find someplace quiet until we can puzzle out a solution. So we took a vacation to the country. Far away from crowds and people and the bustle of the city, 
and everything that might cause my darling Charlotte any distress. We rented a large house, nice and airy, with big rooms and even bigger windows. The property was breathtaking. It was fairly sheltered from the main road with massive trees blocking the house from the views. On the other side sat a lake, beautiful and pristine, and for some reason, entirely devoid of boaters and swimmers, even as the temperature steadily rose into the 90s. There were a few other cabins up there too, but only one had the lights on, and they were all the way across the lake. So, yeah, we were pretty secluded. And it seemed like the peace and quiet was doing its job, or at least that's what I thought for Charlotte. About a week into the vacation, she had a pretty bad nightmare. Woke up in cold sweats, rambling about someone being, and I quote, trapped in the walls. It took a while to convince her that no one was there, and even then, she refused to go back to bed until she patrolled every inch of the house. Worried, I'd carefully ask her about the dream. She immediately turned to me with a wild look in her eyes and began telling me about the person in the walls. The woman! She had said, she's in the walls and she wants me to walk with her. It was, well, it was creepy. I let the subject drop because my prodding resulted in Charlotte's repetition of the same story. And it was really starting to freak me out. I remember getting up that same night to use the bathroom and hearing the faintest whisper of voices from our bedroom. I assumed it was Charlotte. I mean, who else would it be? We were secluded. And so I poked my head into the room to see if she needed anything, but she was fast asleep and hadn't moved from where she'd been when I got up. I did my best to shake it off, assuming that Charlotte's stories were just getting to me or my ears were playing tricks on me or just something, anything. Three days later, Charlotte had came down with something. We both thought it might be the flu and had been holed up in a room all day. Or, well, more accurately... She had been holed up in the guest bedroom because she was being considerate and didn't want me to get sick. I was in the kitchen making chicken soup, which is her favorite to bring to her. Now, while in the kitchen, I heard somebody shuffling around upstairs, a sound like dragging of socked feet across hardwood floors. But Charlotte's room was directly above, so it was clear who was making the noise. What was unclear was why. I wondered if she had been feeling a little bit better, so I went up to check on her. By the time I reached the door, the shuffling had stopped. I eased it open, only to find Charlotte fast asleep. The rest of the room was empty, and the window shut tight. It was unsettling, but the times before it, I made excuses for why I was now hearing these noises. So by the time I got back to the kitchen, I'd convinced myself it was just the house's natural settling noises, nothing more than the wood gently protesting against gravity. So when the noises startled up again, I ignored them, finished the soup, and brought it back up to Charlotte. In the days that followed, it only got worse. I would hear the shuffling upstairs, pacing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, all day long. But whenever I went up to check, there'd be nothing, nothing there. Charlotte had somewhat recovered, but requested to even change rooms, asking to remain in the guest room, 
that exact room, as you probably guessed, where the noises were coming from. And I chose to stay in the master after five consecutive nights of poor sleep in the second bedroom. I would wake up at random intervals, my dreams full of strange voices and faces I didn't know. I made excuses to myself time and time again. I know I did. That room was too cold, I thought, or maybe too warm. Or the window was positioned so the moon was shining in my eyes. I don't know why I was so adamant on disbelieving. Even when I had all this evidence mounted against me, I don't know why I didn't call someone or try to investigate. I'd sometimes find Charlotte sitting on her bed with the curtains drawn, just staring at the wall. I'd hear her voice and pop my head around the corner, only to find that she wasn't actually talking to me. I started taking walks around the property and attempt to clear my head, but I kept hearing those footsteps behind me and could never get too far away from the house without giving up and turning back. And through it all, I could hear the shuffling, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, all day long. I, well, the last day we were on vacation was June 22nd, her birthday. Her birthday. I had this whole thing planned. We would go for a walk out to the house's garden, eat a picnic lunch, and spend the afternoon listening to old records. I can hear the shuffling again, but chose to ignore it, even as it grew faster and more frantic than it had ever been. My focus that day was giving Charlotte an amazing birthday, but that was my mistake. I had gotten so used to the shuffling that I tuned it out completely as I got dressed that morning. I ignored it, and I bounced up the stairs in my excitement. How wrong was I? How foolish? The door was locked. That was the first warning sign, and I missed it. Maybe if I'd stopped to think about what was happening, maybe if I had blocked it out and pretended everything was fine, I, I knocked. Once, twice, three times, no answer, only that damned shuffling noise. I couldn't ignore it now, not when it was staring me straight in the face. There was someone, no, no, scratch that, something moving in that room. I bellowed to Charlotte that I would find an axe or something to help break down that door so I can save her. That's when I heard her voice, and it sounded so unlike my Charlotte that I froze in place. No, she rasped. The key is under the mat. She kept repeating this, her voice blurring, turning her words into a broken song. I bolted for the key, fumbling it in a lock in a blind panic. The door opened, and I felt ice water flood my veins. There was my Charlotte, my beautiful, sweet, sweet Charlotte, hunched in the corner of the room. The walls were torn to shreds, the wallpaper marred beyond recognition, Bits of ravaged paper and wood bits littered the floor and clung to her hair. Along the wall, I can see a deep, splintering rift in the woodwork, as if it were a part of it, or a little bit, had been scooped out at shoulder height with a massive claw. Her head snapped around to gaze at me, a wild look in her eyes, 
and she grinned, grinned at me, her smile crooked and started to creep along the wall, her shoulders frowning the path of the rift, splintered woods snagged against her cardigan, pulling long threads of wool from it and adding them to the growing pile of detritus on the floor. The last thing I remember before I fainted was her voice cackling. I've got out at last. You can't put me back. It was dark when I woke up. I was alone too. I don't know how I knew exactly, but it was the one thing I was certain of. I sort of wandered through the house in a daze until I somehow was back at our apartment. According to Lois, who was apartment sitting for us, I'd just shown up in the building absolutely covered head to toe in wood shavings. Bits of paper stuck to my hair. I looked like I'd just seen a ghost. I told her everything, and together we went back to the cabin to look for Charlotte. We couldn't find anything. Just the ravaged bedroom and a few threads from her sweater caught in the fence. There's not much to tell after that. I went to the authorities, filed a missing persons report, and just tried to live. But I can still hear the shuffling. Even when it's not completely quiet, I hear the faintest scuff of a footstep, the echo of a sock against wood. I'm not sleeping anymore. There's something living in my walls. I can hear it. It's coming for me. I can hear it. It walks back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and it'll not stop until I walk with it. Whoa, that ending. You should have saw my face. I was like, ugh. What? <laughs> Spooky. Where does she go? Um, she became the woman in the wall. Damn, dude. That's like actually spooky dookie. Like I honestly that whole time was thinking like, could you imagine if this like actually was happening to you? If you actually had to go through somebody like hearing these things and like doing these things? And like That's transitioning scary. into that like possessive mm-hmm. state of mind too. Like mm-hmm. and, and to just like see your wife or your girlfriend or or your significant other in general, to see them just like staring at a wall and like talking to it. Like I would feel like I wanna put you in a loony bin. Yeah, that's fucking scary. So one of my favorite movies when I was growing up was The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Yes, I love that. Oh sorry, I would just like <laughs> in your face. That was one of the absolutely most terrifying movies ever growing up I watched on repeat and like mm-hmm. that remind me of the scene where she was like eating the bug and she turned yes. around and she's like Bleh. like that's literally what that reminded me of I really wish people could see your <laughs> your like body language right now I was like I was hunched like, over I was yeah. like eating the fucking cockroach <laughs> <laughs> um so I know we need to watch that movie oh god I love that movie so much so my first creepypasta is called clawfoot bathtub Ever since her parents bought the clawfoot bathtub, Janie had felt ill at ease when she went into the bathroom. Her father said it was a vintage Victorian tub, but she suspected he had gotten it cheap from an old antique store. Almost everything they owned was used. Her father could not resist a discount. Something about the antique bath bothered her. Perhaps it was the dark, ugly, reddish-brown stains on the porcelain. Maybe it was the gnarled, cast-iron legs of the bath jutted out at odd angle. They looked like paws of some monstrous, mishappened beast. Janie was almost 13 years old, but her mother still treated her like a child, telling her when to get up, when to do her homework, when she could watch TV, and when she had to go to bed. 
Her parents seemed to argue constantly about everything. Even the slightest thing would spark a feud that lasted for hours. She couldn't remember a time where there had been peace and quiet in the house. All day long, her mother and her father would be at each other's throats, having argument after argument. Often at night, when her parents were yelling and screaming, Janie would pull a pillow over her head and block out the noise and cry herself to sleep. With all the chaos at home, the young girl sometimes felt as if she was losing her mind. Lately, she'd begun to doubt her sanity more and more. Every time she went into the bathroom to take a shower or brush her teeth, she would see things out the corner of her eye. Reflected in the mirror, she could see the clawfoot bathtub behind her. Once, she thought she saw blood running out of the faucet. But when she turned to look, the taps weren't running. On another occasion, she thought she saw some dark, shadowy shapes lying in the tub, its head barely peeking over the side. Of course, when she spun around, her heart was racing with fear, but the claw bathtub was empty. Whenever she undressed and stepped into the tub to take a shower, she had the strangest sensation that she was being watched. The hair on the back of her neck stood up, and she felt like somebody was staring at her naked body. One night, while she was taking a shower, she dropped the soap. As she bent down to pick it up from the bottom of the tub, she lost her balance and felt backwards. Suddenly, it felt as if hands were grabbing her and holding her under the water. The terrified girl kicked and struggled, eventually freeing herself from the invisible paws that seemed to be clutching tightly to her skin. Spluttering and gasping for air, she thought she could hear a faint laughter echoing around the small bathroom. In the morning, she decided to pay a visit to the local antique shop where her father had purchased the clawfoot bathtub. When she asked the owner about the vintage bath he had sold a few days before, she was shocked by the horrifying tale he had to tell. Apparently, the old clawfoot bathtub dated back to the Victorian era. The man said that had once belonged to an infamous and rivaled serial killer named George Haig. Janie's jaw dropped and she began to shake with fear. The man said that the serial killer would lure young girls back to his house and run a bath for them. Then, while they bathed, he would spy on them through a hole he had drilled into the wall. When they least expected it, he would pounce on them and hold their heads underwater until they drowned. The evil murderer would then chop up their bodies with an axe and dispose of the pieces in the garbage. After a number of young girls went missing in this area, his terrible deeds finally caught up to him. A neighbor was snooping through his trash when she came across the grisly remains and contacted the police. They arrested him, put him on trial. He was found guilty and executed by hanging. Janie was terrified beyond belief. She realized that she had to convince her parents to get rid of that clawfoot bathtub before something horrible happened. The young girl ran back to her house as fast as her legs would carry her. When she got home, she found her father sitting alone in the living room sofa. The TV was off and the house was deadly quiet. Where's mom? asked Janie. She's upstairs taking a bath, said her father. I'll go check on her. Janie sat on the sofa while her father went upstairs. The house was so quiet, it unnerved her. She wasn't used to this much silence. Suddenly, she heard a series of short, sharp clunks coming from upstairs, followed by a slow, deliberate footsteps that echoed across the ceiling and traveled down the stairs. Her father appeared at the door to the living room. His eyes were glazed and he had an odd look on his face. Then she noticed he was holding a bloody axe. Your mother is finished. Now it's your turn to take a bath. 
Oh, shit. Shit. I was not <laughs> expecting that. I was expecting the mom to, like, have a bath and then, like, the bloody murderer was just going to, like, fucking get her. But it possessed the dad. Yeah, it was, like, the energy from the oh bathtub, like, because obviously there was, like, domestic disputes, so it took over the dad and then just... Um, that's spooky dookie. That's spooky dookie. This one, this is the next one. Are you ready? Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is called... I picked up a faceless hitchhiker. Mm. Intrigued? I'm intrigued. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? <laughs> My lord, this is inquisitively busting. <laughs> it's bussin' bussin'. <laughs> Normally, I don't pick up hitchhikers. By rule, I don't think it's worth the risk when if someone truly needs a ride, I mean, they can just call Uber or Lyft and be off in 10 minutes. However, while I was on a quick snack run last month, I made the mistake of breaking my rule when I approached a young woman who was walking alone in the pouring rain. At first, I fully intended to drive by as I would have with any other person. She must have noticed me driving up because right as I came up to her, she spun around, nearly jumped in front of my car, and frantically waved her arms for me to stop. As I screeched to a halt, she ran up to my driver's side window and started on a tangent about how her phone died six miles away from home. Her face was obstructed by a mask, oversized hat, and dark glasses, so I couldn't really glean on any semblance of the sincerity from her facial expressions, but I can hear the desperation in her voice. Dumb of a decision as it was, I didn't feel right letting her walk home in the rain without a phone when she's clearly begging for help. This on top of the fact that I didn't exactly have anywhere else to be at 1am. I opened the door and almost as soon as she entered the car, she asked me to just go straight. As I drove, I tried to make conversation with the stranger, but I could never really get an actual response. The only reply I received was, I'd like to go home. Please help me get home. Eventually, I just gave up entirely. After about 10 minutes of driving straight, I asked if I was supposed to be turning anywhere, but she met me with silence. I turned towards the woman for a brief moment to repeat my question, but instead slammed on the brakes when I laid eyes on her. All of the items covering her face have been removed to reveal a completely smooth surface. The only hint at some approximation of a face was a slight rise and fall of veiny skin where her mouth would have been, almost as if it was imitating breathing. Instinctively, I put the car in a park and I moved to run out, but before I could even touch the handle, a large hand clamped around my arm and held me in place. I was close to having a full-blown panic attack, but was raised by a gnarled finger to non-existent lips and made a quiet, shh. When she spoke, her voice had taken on a much more gravelly tone, and the pressure from her vice grip forced me to take every word with the utmost respect. You will not leave, she stated. You must drive. You no longer have a choice. When she released her grip, I didn't say a word. 
I didn't even want to comment on the apparent bruising on my arm for fear she'd do much worse if I complained. I simply exhaled, put the car into drive, and kept going. We must have driven for another half hour. She'd occasionally tell me to make a turn here or there. Still, after about another 15 minutes, I knew we were heading towards the more rural parts of the county, an area where people were known to go missing. With every glance in her direction, I can see her featureless face was trained on me and me alone. It was as if she was observing me, not entirely sure of whether or not she could trust I'd take her wherever she wanted to go, and as soon as that trust was broken, it would be very quickly over for me. Now eventually, she instructed me to pull up to a long, run-down house just off the highway. The windows were boarded up, and I can see piles of trash just thrown about the exterior. When we stopped in front of it, she told me to get out. An unconscious shake of my head prompted her to slam her giant fist on the dashboard, cracking the plastic. Without argument, I walked out into the cold night. She followed behind and pointed at the house, and in silence, we walked to the decaying building and were immediately met with a groan. I shined my phone's flashlight forward and saw what appeared to be a homeless man writhing around on the ground in pain. He was foaming at the mouth and his eyes were bloodshot. I gasped and took a step back onto some glass which alerted him to our presence. And he turned to me and begged for help. He begged for me to call an ambulance or at least take a message for his kids. He began rambling about how he'd make a colossal mistake and unfortunately he... He never got to finish what he was saying. The woman pounced. In a blink of an eye, she was on top of him, her hands contorted into a claw that wrapped entirely around his face. Thirteen long fingers held his head down as he struggled against her ungodly strength. He tried to fight back, but the weak man's struggles were met even with more force. The creature upon him was determined to lap up every last breath, and I swore I could hear a twisted cuckle as it watched him cling to life. The screams seemed like they went on forever, but in reality, it was quick. Maybe 30 seconds had passed, and he was gone. When she retracted from the body, a quick shine of my phone's light revealed a broken jaw, a twisted nose, and deep bruising around the neck. The woman faced away from me, and for a moment, we both just stood there in that horrible place. I tried to find my voice. I wanted nothing more than the strength to tell her that I wanted to just go home and pretend like the night was all a nightmare. I wouldn't tell anybody about this incident, but I didn't have to. Reminiscent of the way she turned to me on that very dark, rainy road, she spun around and revealed not just a large smile, but a brand new face. One that greatly resembled that of that man she had just taken from this world. Her parting words to me in this voice were, Thank you very much. Never return here. With that, she simply walked further into the decaying structure. As soon as she was out of sight, I sprinted back to my car and sped all the way home. That night, I must have quadruple-checked all the locks, taped the curtains down, left a pile of makeshift weapons by my bed. Every single dream I had for the next month consisted not just of some visions of her, but of many more creatures like her. 
And honestly, despite it all, I've never wanted to tell anyone. I want nothing less than to be another random guy throwing a story in the sea of tall tales. I knew that anyone I told this to would roll their eyes and tell me that I'm being ridiculous or that I needed to be drug tested. I'd rather just avoid the scrutiny entirely. But just last week, a man was found dead in his home, clearly suffocated, jaw and nose broken. No tips have led to anything significant. The police's only hint is a crappy video of some young man who was described as appearing featureless being dropped off near the home. Funnily enough, just last night, I saw a post on one of those community apps saying that someone in that area thought they saw the murdered man walking the streets. Turned out to be just a young woman who looked remarkably similar to him. After hearing that story, I think I feel a little less crazy going to public with this. To the man I enabled the death of, I'm just, I'm so sorry. I thought I was doing something good, and as a result, it ended in tragedy. I will never forgive myself for that. I don't know what you were going through, but you deserved so much better. And to the world at large, if you're ever in a situation where someone is trying to hitchhike with you, please keep driving. I want this to be a movie. <laughs> it sounds like some supernatural like <laughs> demon. Like, Just like um, the way that it's described, like when she was in the car, like I pictured it in my yes. head and I was like, oh man, that would be such a dope movie though. I'm thinking of like a changeling, like a, like a mm -hmm. shapeshifter, you know, and that's all I was like picturing when I was like reading the story and finding it. I was like, holy shit, some like Sam and Dean Winchester <laughs> need to like break into those homes and like... Finish this changeling, you know. Wow. Finish this changeling off. I've never watched Supernatural, but I, oh but I guess I'm in. I'm the into what you're saying. The trap, the betrayal, the betrayal. <laughs> so my next story is called the Wishing Well, and so this story is based in England. And so some of the dialogue, guys, I'm gonna try to do like an English accent, but it might sound kind of Scottish because I don't really fucking know. I. I'm literally so excited <laughs> that you are going to do – sorry, I feel like I sound like Kourtney Kardashian right now. <laughs> like, no, but I'm I'm so excited for you to do this because you did the the um, southern accent Thank last you. episode. Oh, my God. Thanks Look for hyping go. me up. Yes, you got this. You got this. You got All this. All right. So we'll see how it sounds. So if you guys come at me and say, you sounded more Scottish, I'm, I don't really – I mean, I don't know. So – and to our listeners in the UK, you are more than welcome to Ooh, make fun of Molly. Yeah. Yeah, You're you more are. than welcome to make fun of her because totally we we hope that you guys know we're not mocking. If we try and do accents, we're not mocking. We're just trying to make this lighthearted and fun. Yeah. And it's bringing a character to this, and especially because this is particularly in England. I was like, well, why would I use my American accent? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we're Fitting. in England. Let's do this. Yeah. Let's, let's do it. Many years ago, there was an exclusive boarding school in England that had a scout troop. The leader of the scout troop was a teacher and one weekend per month, she would take the scouts on a camping trip. There was one young boy in the scout troop who was very disobedient and disruptive his name was Stanley Jenkins. He was always getting up to mischief. No matter how many times the teacher told him off, he would never listen. 
One weekend, the scouts went camping in the English countryside. They got permission to set up a camp on a farmer's land. The spot was on a ridge overlooking a deep valley. The teacher warned the boys not to go off wandering on their own and told them that under no circumstances were they allowed to go down into the valley. While the teacher and the other scouts were pitching the tents, Stanley Jenkins and his friends were sitting around in the grass. They were too lazy to help set up the camp. Instead, they went looking for some kind of mischief that they could get into. As Stanley Jenkins gazed down into the valley, he noticed a field that was surrounded by barbed wire fence. At one corner of the field, there was an old stone well. It looked like the field was never used and was overgrown with weeds and brambles. Just then, they saw the farmer who owned the land coming up with his dog. As he passed by, Stanley Jenkins waved at him and the farmer stopped to talk. What's down in that field down there? asked Stanley Jenkins. The one with the well inside it. That's the wishing well, the farmer replied. But you're not allowed to go down there. I hope your teacher told you that. Okay, that sounded a little bit more like Irish. Irish? Okay, the farmer could be Irish then, I guess, right? (laughs) Okay, we're getting somewhere. (laughs) I love this. I love this, Molly. Wishing well? You mean if you throw some money into the well, you can make a wish? The farmer let out a laugh. Well, I wouldn't know, he said. That's why they call it, but nobody around here goes near the wishing well. In all the years I've lived here, I've never set foot in that field. What's the matter with it? asked Stanley Jenkins. All I know, the cows and the sheep keep away from it. Even my old dog won't go through that field. Neither should you boys. If you've got a brain in your head, they say it's haunted. Haunted? Stanley Jenkins scuffed. Haunted by who? You're doing great. Thank you. Especially for somebody who's never watched Harry Potter. <laughs> I I love this. Thanks. I hope I'm doing it good. <laughs> you 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 probably aren't. <laughs> probably not. No, probably not. Not at all. But you know what? Damn it, I'm gonna try. <laughs> yeah, you're trying. You're trying for what it's worth. And it's it's a good storytelling mm. method, you know? Just yeah. I'm a different... method actor. Yes, yeah. One would yeah. say. You, you, I'm assuming you probably practice this in your, like, <laughs> closet. In the mirror. In the mirror for a good, like, two solid minutes before we yeah. started. <laughs> totally. Three women and a man, said the farmer gravely. Who are they? Asked Stanley Jenkins. It all happened before my time, said the farmer. But I was told they died in the well or were found dead in it. I saw them once. It was a twilight I was standing on this very ridge. My old dog saw them too. They came out of the bushes and went crawling around. Four of them. Just black rags and white bones. It seems as though I could hear their bones cracking as they moved. I couldn't make out their faces. All I could see was their teeth. The boys let out a collective gasp. Stanley Jenkins chuckled. What happened then? he asked. I don't know, said the farmer. My old dog took off running. I took off running after him. So take my advice, boys. Stare clear of the wishing well if you know what's good for you. With that, the farmer tipped his hat and walked off. The boys <laughs> tipped his hat to do top of the morning. <laughs> I was just picture him like, like screaming at these young boys, you know, and like saying like, "Don't, don't go to the wishing well. Don't go to the wishing well." And then takes T- off tips his hat. His hat. <laughs> 
<laughs> like it takes a little bow, you know, and was like, "All right, we'll see you later. Like, see you later." Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, exactly. Don't go ahead there. Talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs> what a load of bull," said Stanley Jenkins. "I don't believe a word of it." <laughs> was that a pun? Did you say I don't believe a word of it, or I don't believe a well of it? Because that would have been perfect. That writing. Oh man, that would have been amazing. Also, I really am jumping from accent to accent yeah on this I don't, person i don't know what you're doing anymore it's not even like uk it's not an, it's, it's a just, smile it's thing. a made-up accent a made-up um sound coming from your voice box at this point exactly <laughs> the next evening the teacher gathered the scouts and did a head count she noticed one of the boys was missing after doing roll call she discovered that the missing boy was stanley jenkins None of the other scouts seemed to have any idea where he was. The wishing well. The wishing well. Then one boy spoke up. Maybe he's down by the wishing well, he said. (laughs) (laughs) Dear Lord. The teacher's face went pale. The wishing well, she gasped. But you were all given instructions not to go down there. The scouts followed the teacher as she walked to the top of the ridge and looked down at the valley below. The light was fading and it was getting cold, but there wasn't a breath of wind in the air. Can anyone see him? The teacher asked. There he is, said one of the boys. (laughs) (laughs) Getting over the barbed wire fence. Do you see him? (laughs) Yes, it's him, said another boy. I recognize his sweater. (laughs) Now he's making his way towards the wishing well. That little idiot, the teacher growled. Teachers calling students idiots and shit. Um, yeah, you would too if you like. <laughs> if Stanley said, Jenkins. Don't go in the wishing well, Stanley. <laughs> Stanley. And then he fucking goes there. I'm gonna call him a little idiot too. He's a little shithead. Little fucker. Little fuckeroni. At that moment, one of the boys let out a high pitched scream and covered his eyes. What's that black thing on the path? cried another boy crawling on all fours it's a woman oh god don't look at her <laughs> ladies and gentlemen her <laughs> <laughs> stop it the teacher said loudly get a hold of yourself so i'm going down there hancock and farley you run to the farmer's house and call for help the rest of you boys stay here and don't you move <laughs> another scottish yeah, that was definitely scottish <laughs> The teacher ran off, leaving the boys alone on the ridge, staring down at the field below. To their horror, they saw another black figure emerge from the bushes, then another, and another. They saw Stanley Jenkins making his way towards the wishing well. He didn't seem to notice the black figures approaching him, shuffling forward with their arms outstretched. The boys started yelling as loud as they could, trying to warn him. As he reached the wishing well, Stanley Jenkins seemed to hear their cries. He suddenly stopped and turned around. Then he let out a scream, more piercing and dreadful than any of the boys on the ridge, but it was too late. The black figures closed in on him until he was surrounded by all sides. Then they pounced. The boys stared at the scene below in terrified silence. They could hardly breathe as they watched the horrific struggle. The hood of one of the figures fell back, revealing a white skull with stringy wisps of hair. Their gnarled, bony fingers were ripping and tearing at Stanley Jenkins as soon as his awful screams ceased. The boys spotted their teacher running towards the field. She scrambled through the barbed wire fence, but she stopped and wouldn't go any further. 
The farmer arrived with a number of policemen. The boys pointed down at the field below. They got him! They got him! Over and over again. The policeman ran down into the valley. The headmaster arrived and all the boys were transported back to school. Some of them were so traumatized, they later left school. The teacher stayed there with the police all night. The next morning at dawn, they found what was left of Stanley Jenkins at the bottom of the wishing well. He had been torn to pieces. His parents came to collect the remains. The farmer put up another barbed wire fence and erected a large sign with danger and keep out written in red letters. Locals in the area say that the field is now haunted by five ghostly back figures. Three women, a man, and a young boy. Stanley? <laughs> Stanley Jenkins, you shithead. You should have just stayed with your class. <laughs> Again, apologies for the very collective accent. It wasn't even an accent. It was accents. Ugh. It was like multiple blended. It was a blended accent. Again, feel free to reach out to us and just like make fun of Molly. Yeah. Because I'm here for it. I want to read those. <laughs> that's that's the day that I will actually respond to your DMs <laughs> instead of Molly. Because I want to do that with you. And I will be hiding in my closet. <laughs> practicing. And practicing. I'm just like sobbing and like practicing my like UK accent. <laughs> God damn it. I love it. So my next story is kind of a longer one. So sorry. Just a little heads up. But I feel like you're gonna you're gonna like some parts to this, and especially you, Molly. I love it already. <laughs> it is called Summer Nights. Summer nights are I'll be ready to party. Hey, yeah, ain't nothing like them summer nights. Yeah. You're welcome for that. I didn't know the words in the beginning, but I knew the Dude, melody. that song is my jam in life. <laughs> <laughs> if you're from Missouri and you know what the Styrofoam Ghetto was, like <laughs> cruising down a Styrofoam Ghetto listening to Ain't Nothing Like Them Summer Nights. <laughs> it's so good. Summer nights in the small college town were something straight out of a pulp magazine. A risque combination of nostalgia, science fiction, and impossible stories. Every year, from May to August, the place was left largely empty due to the legion of students who had skipped town for the break. Vacated dormitories languished across campus and the streets were quiet, even when they shouldn't be. Time lurched, unbothered, and the resulting desolate landscape was beautiful and haunting. The perfect setting for a massacre in a Tarantino film. Only the locals remained for the most part taking care of the city's mundane functions and pretending any of it mattered. I had just finished my junior year at St. Dominic University and as usual, going back home abroad was not a feasible option. So I stayed behind for the school's ground departure digging holes, mowing grass, and whacking weeds. The pay was minimum wage, but doing it full-time meant I had enough cash to cover rent, buy groceries, and even venture to the occasional dance with the devil at the local watering hole. Life used to be so cheap in small-town America, and every day after sundown, temperatures would drop to the double digits, 
while a cool breeze tempered the hot asphalt. In the absence of a skyline, darkness followed. By the time I'd burned through a joint and drank a six of Modelo's sitting on my rooftop, conditions were just so perfect to go for a walk. I wandered the streets at night, equipped with a 30 gigabyte fifth generation iPod, thank you very much, filled with enough angst to get the girl and take revenge on my enemies. Walking carelessly down the middle of the road, submerged under electric guitars high on overdrive pedal effects. Every step taken was a reassurance of my dominion over the city and the dark. I was powerful. I was alive. I was wrong. It was well past the small hours one night when I took a few turns off of 16th Street down rows of ordinary homes, each with their AC unit sticking out of the window. At the end of every driveway, decrepit mailboxes withered under a crescent moon. Streetlights were scarce and spirits roamed unopposed. On my earbuds, Matthew Bellamy was just about to hit the high note and sing for absolution, when a pair of creeping lights in front of me caught my attention. It was a vehicle. I moved over to the right and kept walking, expecting it to drive by, and instead, the car slowed down and came to a stop under the streetlight straight ahead. A wisp of smoke tied to a cigarette's cherry emanated from the window on the driver's side. Fuck! I thought. It wasn't unusual to get harassed by some of the locals on occasion. They were an antiquated religious bunch, and my appearance left much to desire, according to their standards. Still, I didn't break pace, and this was my town after all. The vehicle was an old white sedan, rusted at the edges with a few dents on the hood and one chrome antenna standing tall. A plastic crucifix hung from the rearview mirror. Behind the wheel, a woman, long gray hair, and a wrinkled face. She looked at me wide-eyed and weary. A glowing cig hung from her thin lips. I pressed pause. You need to take that off and burn it, compadre, she said in a menacing, raspy voice, taking a hit and exhaling a heavy cloud of smoke. Her left elbow rested on the window frame, and then flickering cigarette, now at the tip of her fingers, pointed straight at my chest. The smell of cheap tobacco hung in between us. I rolled my eyes and smirked, realizing the only reason why this woman was pestering me. It was my shirt. I was wearing a vintage Motley Crue Shout at the Devil 1984 t-shirt with one of the giant inverted pentagrams, the sigil of Baphomet, a cursed garment in her eyes, no doubt. To me, though, it was a cool piece of rock and roll history, a work of art in its own right, a collector's item. It was also just a cotton shirt, one my father wore a long time ago. Fuck off, lady. Jesus is dead. I replied with a derision, hoping this would offend her enough to leave me alone. Instead, the crone let out 
a loud, mischievous cackle that made me uncomfortable, and her wide grin revealed multiple cavities and stained teeth. Though unnerving, there was an unmistakable honesty to her reaction, the sort of transparency only a lunatic possesses. I turned away and resumed walking. The sounds of rattling phlegm and malice somehow disguised as laughter reverberated behind me. Then, silence. The night was quiet again except for the car's engine's steadily growl, which meant the hag wasn't driving away. An eerie sensation crawled on my skin. I looked back defiantly to find her staring at me, her striking blue eyes gleaming on the side mirror of the old sedan. She seemed excited. Stupid bitch, I thought, half annoyed. The car's bright red brake lights blinked and began to move, slowly disappearing in the dark. I took the next available turn down a narrow road to my right, scoffing at the pathetic woman and her superstition while deciding whether to restart the song or just let it play. Unconcerned, convinced 5,000 years of religion was all make-believe, pitiful stories for fools and children, arrogant, underestimating the worms and whelms and appetite of our creator, alone, unaware that demons are anything but superstitious. Quite the opposite. They come in many forms, and their taste is most eccentric. And thus, despite the bedlam's grin warning, I continued my stroll, undeterred, a mistake I would soon pay for in flesh and blood. Thick, misgiving clouds began to take hold of the sky. Indifferent, the stars above did nothing but contemplate. Shadows crept uncontested, a string of alternative rock anthems, and a few turns later, everything looked the same, deep in a suburban sprawl, yet nothing seemed familiar. I found myself in an alley walking on loose gravel when I saw it. A person. A man, sitting on a porch to my right, just far enough from the dim streetlight to appear as nothing more than a bleak silhouette, an apparition. But he was there, the weak, inconsolent glow coming from inside his house betrayed him. Attempting to show traditional courtesy, I nodded and made a small hand gesture. The figure didn't move an inch. Not good. Moving in the dark, he seemed more arachnid than human. A few crooked steps later, and he was there, under the streetlight, ten feet away and impossibly tall. I stood still, awkwardly staring at the specimen before me. Everything about him was just a bit too long for comfort. His limbs stretched to abnormal lengths, and large tendons protruded at every joint. An excessive amount of cartilage gave him the weird appearance. His pale skin drew a sharp contrast with the black Metallica t-shirt he was wearing, Rows of cross-shaped headstones lined up on a field. The cover art for Master of Puppets. Nice. 
There were dark stains on his jean shorts, and he was barefoot. Wild hair, absent eyes, Morris lips. It was hard to tell if he was even looking at me. I pressed pause and took off my beds. Hey, I'm looking for the Leaper Messiah. Seen him around? I asked, trying to lighten the mood, embarrassed to have stared for so long. No response of any kind. Nonverbal, not physical, nothing. After a second of silence, I turned around and resumed my stroll, feeling a bit uneasy. I put the headphones on and did not restart the music. The sound of my footsteps carried me to the end of the block. I took a left and couldn't help looking back. He was at the same spot, under the same incancelent light, yet something was different. Maybe it was the increased distance between us, but now he seemed alert. His head was definitely tilted in my direction, feeling more unsettled, so I picked up the pace. It was time to head home. Checking over my shoulder every few steps, I reached the next street before making a right turn. I looked behind me one last time to make sure my sinister encounter was over. The empty road was mostly dark, and the trees swayed back and forth to the wind's ominous melody. No sign of him. Relieved, I pulled out my iPod and began strolling down the long list of eyeliner bands, looking for something upbeat. The screen's blue glow illuminated my face as I made my choice. Chop Suey by System of a Down Satisfied, I pressed play and put the Apple device back in my pocket. Looking up, my short-lived sense of safety vanished. I can see the man, barely a block away on the opposite corner, hunched over on the obscured sidewalk, his foreboding figure poised perfectly still. Had he had been there this whole time? I was sure the street was just empty a minute ago. But then again, it didn't really matter, and at that moment, there was only one thought, loud, inside my head. This fucker is following me! I looked away and continued walking, this time a little faster. Once out of his field of vision, my stride sped up to a run. Wake up! Barked system of a down in my ears as I took a right sharp turn into an alleyway. Empty trash cans stood witnesses to the terror in my movements. Grab a brush and put a little makeup! I made a left into an avenue and kept running. My black Converse high tops gripped the hardened concrete at every corner. Hide the scars and fade away though, shake up! You want me? The track raged untethered in between hooks and sacrilegious questions. Six more blocks in, the campus tower was finally visible. Slowing down and breathing hard, I took off my buds and looked around. Silent rows of homes stared back at me. I walked the next several blocks with caution, catching my breath, sticking to the sidewalk, and without any music. Instead, I listened to the sound of rustling leaves harmonizing alongside a choir of crickets. The ghostly call of a lone owl accentuated their tune as well. I was in the middle of an intersection when the somber, natural symphony came to an abrupt halt. For a second, there was absolute 
silence. Then, with a loud pop, every street lamp around me went out, shards of glass rained down on the pavement, followed by near-pierced darkness. I dropped a cold sweat, ran down my neck, far off into a distance, erratic footsteps moved wickedly up and down the neighborhood. It was him, and he was coming for me. Afraid, trying not to panic, I flipped open my Nokia cell phone and dialed 911. First off, Nokia, come on, dude. Come on. That's your first mistake. You have an Apple fifth generation iPod and a Nokia? 911, what's your emergency? A female voice inquired in a monotone professional demeanor. Hey, yeah, uh, listen, I think I'm being stalked by some guy. I said, checking in every direction, trying to pinpoint the threat. What's your location? The operator replied. Um, a few blocks west of campus. My heartbeat accelerated. The footsteps were getting louder. I'm sending a patrol your way. Do you have a description of the suspect? She asked, mechanically typing on her keyboard. Yeah, he's a dark hair, tall, pale skin, lanky, and pretty fucking unsettling. He's wearing a Metallica t-shirt and a couple of sizes too small for him. Silence. Hello? I ventured, feeling a knot in my stomach. The footsteps were close now. Run, said the voice on the other side of the line. Quiet and meek. I was scared. I stood there, frozen. Run! shrieked the emergency operator in a terrified pitch. At the same time, the approaching sounds of bare skin on broken glass cut through my spine. I peered into the darkness, and he was close, only two blocks away, moving towards me in a horrific manner. His four extremities were bent in exaggerated angles, hands and feet making contact with the ground. With every step, his man's hips and shoulders shifted mechanically from side to side, disjointed. There was no energy wasted in his movements. Every muscle twitch was sharp with a purpose, a fine-tuned supernatural predator. Quick, his ill-bodying steps carried him viciously through the road, leading straight to me. A primal fear overwhelmed every nerve in my body, then a shot of adrenaline mobilized my legs and I began sprinting in the opposite direction. Pray, after all, always makes a run for it, though usually to no avail. But maybe there is still hope for me. Still, I had to find the patrol car. Am I even going the right way? There was no time to think. In a matter of seconds, I felt this man's razor-sharp hand grip my hair from behind me while pulling me down. His grip tore off a piece of my scalp as he pulled me hard on the ground. In an instant, his entire frame was on top of me. Arms, knees, elbows, legs, every one of my limbs pinned down. His right palm pressed so hard against my face, I felt my right cheekbone crack and sink in. 
while his heinous fingers and toes dug deep into my body at every point of contact. A pool of blood began to take shape under my head. The man looked at me with dull eyes and opened his mouth. I looked up in horror to see it was full of molars. No incisors, no canines, only an excessive amount of malformed bicuspids clustering on top of each other, tearing through bleeding bright red gums. I screamed desperately and repeatedly into the night. There was no reply. An eerie stillness descended upon us. What the fuck? was my last feeble thought before I closed my eyes in disbelief, a brutal death seemingly inevitable. Instead, warm bile, blood, and meat poured down on me from his insides. The man was vomiting. He gagged, loosened his grip, retched some more. The stench of organic waste filled my nostrils. I suddenly felt his entire weight come off me and watched him heave a few feet away. Arched back, limbs twisted, a ghastly figure spewing thick fluids in the dark. Wide-eyed and in shock, I felt paralyzed. Get up, you dumb fuck! I thought desperately, but my body didn't respond. On his knees, suddenly the ghoul began trembling and making guttural noises. He strained his torso, gripped the pavement with diabolical strength. His wide open mouth faced the sky. I sat there, terrified, unable to move, until I noticed a lumpy, round-shaped object in the size of a soccer ball inside of him, slowly working its way up out of his neck. Overcoming terror and pain, using my last ounce of adrenaline, I managed to stand up and flee. Slow at first, wounded, but behind me, a loud thud on the ground, followed by a hollow gasp. I turned around just long enough to see that this round-shaped object, now laying on the asphalt, had a face, and I looked away and kept moving as fast as my likes can take me, too scared to even scream. Drenched in filth, every pungent breath reminded me I was a dead man, nauseated, taking off the foul t-shirt, dropping it on the callous road. The sound of my frantic footsteps echoed on the empty street. I searched my pockets for the cell phone, but it was gone. I must have dropped it when that thing took me down. I kept running up ahead. Red and blue lights flooded an alleyway. As I drew closer, a vehicle's headlights poured into the street, and I stepped into the light with the high beams came on, blinding me. I heard the car door open. Don't move! Put your hands where I can see them! commanded a voice without hesitation. Help! I managed to blurt out, raising my hands, gasping for air, blood dripping from my mangled body. Psh! Dispatch, I found the possible victim on 13th and Ash. I'm taking him to the ER, he said in a hurry, turning off the lights. Please, we need to get the fuck out of here, I blurted out, my eyes still readjusting to the dark. The cop proceeded to give me instructions, but his voice quickly faded into the background noise, and it was over. We were dead. 
The demon was here, standing still as a granite statue on the sidewalk, only a few feet away from me, but outside, the policeman's field of vision. Wild hair, absent eyes, Morris lips. On the left hand, a grimy black piece of cloth hung in between his blood-tainted fingers. Hey, you listening to me? I felt the officer's right hand on my back and of my neck. Lower your voice, get in the vehicle, and keep your fucking head down, he said, walking me to the car, checking over his shoulder every few steps. He was clearly agitated. I slumped in the back seat, dreaming the moment that the headlights came back on, convinced the creature would be standing right in front of us, eager to kill. I expected this fetish claws to scatter through my window, grabbing me by the neck and crushing my windpipe at any moment. But nothing of that sort happened. The cruiser switched gears and we drove away in silence. There was blood everywhere and my mind was in pieces. The officer had an apprehensive demeanor about him. The sort of look one has when you haven't been on the job long enough. Now neither of us said a word. A large sonic drink sat in the cup holders and the other a crumpled Allsup's burrito wrapper covered in grease. Scattered shotgun shells waved nervously in the passenger seat and the policeman adjusted his rearview mirror in my direction. You okay back there, amigo? He asked, lowering the window an inch and covering his nose. My stink was suffocating. I remained silent. The officer pressed several keys of his mobile data terminal. A John Wayne bobblehead stood smug on the dashboard. Sirens blaring, a couple of patrol cars sped past us in the opposite direction. The back of my head felt wet. They won't find him, he said, almost annoyed, rubbing his left shoulder. But maybe that's a good thing. I looked up at his reflection for the first time. He noticed the officer shifted his weight on the seat and hesitated. Now, after a short pause, he continued in a serious tone. Whatever that thing is that attacked you tonight, it shows up at random in boondocks all across the Great Plains, always during the season, always in the dark. Any townie some bitch from here from Mississippi can tell you about it. He took a sip through the red plastic straw and kept going. Hell, the locals even have names for it, depending on where you're at. Ever heard of the collector or metalhead? Every pond duck around here calls them something different. It's like any other urban legend, you know how it goes. Just one happens to be true. There is a hint of pride in that last remark. The faint radio transmissions, steady buzz, occasionally interrupted by law enforcement code, played in the background to this officer's words. Every now and again, relatively speaking, mind you, we get reports of a sighting. There's a creepy tall man at the end of the street or a long freak is lurking in the alley. You know, that sort of thing. I'm fine most of the time, but every now and again, it doesn't end well. Old people know better than most. He gripped the steering wheel with both hands. I leaned back and took a deep breath. My whole body was beginning to throb. The officer turned on the blinker and continued unbashed. My own uncle saw him up close for a second back in 86. He was driving home from work late one night when out of nowhere a towering pale man standing in the middle of the road forced him to slam on his brakes. The truck's headlights landed on the thing for a split second. Then it was gone. 
My uncle swears this guy was wearing an Iron Maiden t-shirt, the one where Satan's hanging on puppet strings. The number of beasts, he said, raising his voice. It was apparent the officer was trying to keep me awake. A neon red cross appeared at the horizon. You're not the first, you know. Survivor, I mean. At least not according to the stories we hear from neighboring police departments. The way I see it, Metalhead, likes to play with this food. The policeman asserted. Poor bastards. Apparently they never end. He stopped himself before finishing the sentence. A funeral silence filled the space. If the rumors he'd heard were true, a cruel fate awaited me. Exhausted, I placed my forehead on the steel mesh cage between us and started to sob quietly. Lighting up my iPod's LED lights in my pocket, managed to highlight the dark stains of my jeans. Blood, just starting to coagulate, dripped sluggishly down my naked chest. I lost consciousness in the back seat of the parole car, humiliated, broken, defeated. That was the last summer I ever spent in the town. It was bloodied streets belonged to the devil alone, starving ghosts from the stolen roads, feeding on the anguish of his victims, feeding on me. I can feel them every day, a heavy sense of dread, resting cold on my head, painful at times, like wearing a crown of lead. Soon after being released from the hospital, once the numerous stitches of my body had some time to heal, I packed my suitcase and left the cursed place never to return. One last sunrise full of color and fiction, witnessing my own departure. Today, 15 years later, I lived covered in scars, a daily reminder of my harrowing escape and the terrifying possibility of undiscovered horrors. Most people can't understand how everything changes once you've seen a demon dead in the eyes. If something like Metalhead can exist in the flesh, who's to say there aren't a thousand other creatures of nightmares? Legions, even. Supernatural, capricious life forms with evil intent and sinister appetites. Ripping apart unsuspected humans in the darkest corners of the earth. And so I spent my days in fear and self-imposed isolation, only going out when absolutely necessary and never past sundown, just to be safe. There are six deadbolt locks on my front door, each with its own stainless steel security chain. Aluminum rollers, shutters reinforced with the plexiglass windows of my small apartment. I've been working with different construction crews in the big city since, only ever taking daytime jobs though, just to be safe. Whispers of the pale man pervade certain online forums. However, actual sightings are scarce. When single blurry picture evidences his existence, perched on top of a streetlight, his unmistakable ghoulish appearance fixed on a person holding the camera, a living gargoyle. Apparently, the JPEG was found and leaked a few years back by a rookie working the evidence locker at the police department. The sorry son of a bitch who took the photo remains unidentified. His head was never recovered. Sometimes I lay awake at night, unable to sleep, wondering if the sounds of looming, ever-approaching footsteps is coming from outside the door or inside my head. Paralyzed, afraid of the shadows and dust, certainly, once you begin to doubt your own thoughts, madness becomes inevitable. 
Sanity gets peeled away like a scab, leaving behind a festering psychosis. Damage, irreparable, shattered pieces of what once was a man. Beware, evil exists. Marked for life, a sacrifice, plaything for the damned, another martyr to its beautiful, beautiful, bedeviled summer nights in the small college town. That was so insanely vivid. Like, I fucking <laughs> love that. It was like, it reminded me of a mixture of Death Proof and uh, Constantine. Oh, okay. Like, that's exactly, because like in Constantine, when literally all the lights on the alleyway just mm-hmm. shatter, I Im- imagined it. And I'm like, oh my God, it's like Constantine. <laughs> so I'm like, that needs to be a fucking movie. I feel I like- I fucking loved that. I feel like whoever wrote this, and shout out to that auth- you know, author, um, they need a fucking raise. Yeah, like, they no need shit. A raise. Like it was so detailed and everything. And I and again, I know it was super long, but I wanted to kind of do it in like an eerie way, and like only doing like a normal like um, tone when needed because everything else was just like so creepy mm-hmm. that I just had to give it a creepy vibe. Yeah, no, it was very like I said, vivid. Like I could feel the. Uh, I loved it. That was awesome. I would really love to watch that movie. Me too. Yeah, sounds like really cool. I loved it. What a stellar performance. Perfectly splendid. Perfectly splendid. Thank you for sharing that. That should have been the ender, honestly. No, <laughs> no. Yours yours is going to be fucking great. Uh, I believe in you. Thanks, guys. And whatever accent you choose to do for this one, <laughs> so, if you choose on doing an accent, <laughs> I believe in you. Uh, so this last one, it's more serious. There's no accent. Um, it's... I honestly think this this one was written like insanely beautifully and it kind of reminded me of The Corpse Bride a little bit like the movie. Oh, okay. So I'm excited for this one. Yay! I don't know too. if it'll top that one. I believe it. But you. it's pretty good. It probably will. Come on. Yeah. So this one is called On a Warm Night. Ooh. And a summer, summer night, night, warm night. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Twinning. It is the first truly warm night of the year. Warm enough for him to sleep with his window open. I am overjoyed. I can see him now as I sit perched on the windowsill, no more pressing my ear to the glass for a faint rustle of sheets or the sound of him breathing. There he is in full view, the man I love. He lies prospite, eyes closed, mouth slightly open. I hear the air moving in and out of his lungs as his chest rises and falls. He is exposed, vulnerable. I have only ever seen him wearing clothes before, but now here he is, a thin blue sheet, the only thing between his smooth flesh and the open air. These are the fewest layers that had ever come between us. He looks so peaceful, so restful, and yet watching him, I become sad. I am fully aware that he must never know me, not by sight, nor sound, nor by any of his other senses, and especially not by touch. If he did... Well, I am all too aware of what disastrous consequences that would lead to. So I watch. It's all I can do. Well, that's not true. I can dream too. I dream of crawling into bed with him, wrapping my bony arms around his strapping frame, brushing my skinless mouth against his warm cheek, doing the best I can to approximate a kiss. If heaven were real, as I know most certainly is not, I can imagine that's what it would feel like. Suddenly, a large, chilling gust of wind slams me from behind. I have no time to react, no chance to steady myself. 
Before I grab a hold of anything, down I go, tumbling into the room, straight onto the floor. My brittle body lands with a clatter. For a moment, I lie still, silent. Did I wake him? No. My ears are tuning back into the sweet rhythm of the air as it exits and re-enters his body. He is still asleep. A thought comes to me, an exciting one. If he's asleep and I am here, I am in his room, then maybe, just maybe, I can finally get a closer look at my beloved. For a moment, I weigh my options. Is the risk worth the possible gain? Many things could go wrong, it seems. He could wake up and see me, or worse, I might accidentally brush against his skin. I should be absolutely devastated under either circumstance. And yet, I'm fully aware that I may never get the opportunity to be this close to him. No, I decide. I simply cannot allow such a chance to pass me by. I pull myself up and slowly make my way over to his bed, my calcified feet clicking on the floor as I go. I pray he won't wake up, but I can't seem to tread any more lightly. That's always the way it is, isn't it? Just when you want to be most careful is when your body decides to defy you. At long last, I make it. He's even more beautiful up close. His deep olive skin glistens in the silvery moonlight. His dark brown, almost black hair is charmingly mused. Even though he's aged 26 years, he looks more like a boy sleeping there than a man. For a moment, I nearly forget myself. I reach out for his cheek, but stop my hand in midair. No, I scold myself. You could never, never. Just then, my thoughts are interrupted by a different sort of sound. He's doing something more than breathing now? Speaking? Speaking in his sleep? What is he saying? It sounds like a name of some sort. No human creature has ever spoken or even known my name, so it cannot be mine. Who is it? I strain to listen more closely. Then he speaks again. Lenora. I freeze. A woman's name? I feel a sharp pain. One with no physical point of origin. He has found someone else. I knew somewhere in the back of my mind that this day would come. He is too beautiful to lay unclaimed forever. But never did I dream it would hurt this much. Tears begin to fall from my lidless eyes. A few droplets hit his bedsheet. They soak in, creating thin, darkened spots. I choke back a sob, still trying to be as quiet as I can. Then it hits me. It's a truly terrible plan, and yet it's guaranteed to keep me from feeling this kind of pain ever again. Or at least any new kind of pain. I'm sure I'll never completely recover from this moment for the remainder of the accused millennia I've left. I look at my pointy fingers and try to decide if I have the strength to go through with it. I do. I must. He will never be mine, it's true. But now, he will never be hers. I start with his hair, running my fingers through it. Every strand I touch turns from dark brown to gray-white, becoming thin and falling out of places. My shame is nearly unbearable, but it's already gone too far to stop now. His beautiful face is next. I place my fingers affectionately on his nose. Within seconds, the skin grows thin and every bump becomes visible. Without breaking contact with the skin, I move to his eyes, which immediately sink, leaving his lids to stretch grotesquely over his orbs. I go down to his lips and watch as they go pale and become thin until nearly they disappear. I'm almost done. 
my tears flowing like waterfalls, but I must finish what I've started. I placed a hand directly over his heart. How sad that a moment like this should be the first and last time I touch his chest. All at once, his eyes dart open. He gasps for air. Every muscle in his body contracts and convulses. His stare meets mine and through his pain, confused and utter horror. I hope he can see how sorry I am. And then, just like that, it's over. He falls limp. His formerly youthful body is now dry and pale, his skin nearly splitting where the bones poke out underneath. There is no point in remaining, I decide. With no one left to wake, I let my sobs come freely now as I step out the window seal. I take one last look at the weathered corpse I left behind. When at last I can bear the sight no longer, I give myself over to the wind and allow it to carry me far away. I know that no matter where I land, no matter whose bedroom I'm taken to next, I will never stop mourning him, the man who would never be mine. So if you're ever laying awake on a warm night and you hear the sound of someone faintly crying outside your window, take a moment to think of the sweet, olive-skinned young man and who loved him above all else. Ooh, that was like soft and like sultry, but also like what the fuck you know yeah like i thought it was a beautiful love jealous story. <laughs> it's like jealousy and rage and like all of the seven deadly sins just like were in like spiritual form wow. that just like took this young man because he whispered and spoke in his sleep yeah well he fucked up <laughs> lenora. he should have known better lenora <laughs> Dingleberg. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. Thank you. It was, like I said, it was like it was like soft and sultry, and I I love that. Thanks. It do be like that. Do be like that. Summer days, just sitting around, but when the sun goes down, hey. I'll be ready to party. Hey, hey yeah. yeah, ain't nothing like them summer nights. I'm pretty sure I messed <laughs> that up, but <laughs> it's so good. <clears throat> All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Happy Halloween in a couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs> in a couple weeks? It's, it's a whole month away, Molly. No, it's not. We're in October right now. Yeah. October 6th. <laughs> October 6th. I don't fucking know. I want it to be Halloween already. So. I always <laughs> want it to be Halloween. I want it to be spooky day every single day. I hope this made you feel spooky. Spooky dookie. Bye. Bye.